0: Ready? Absolutely. Here we, go. Here we go. You're listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. I'm Ted Rekin.
1: And I'm Courtney Baldwin.
0: And we're coming to you from the unceded territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people and the Wasanish people. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the show. show. Welcome to Learning Transforms. I'm Ted Regan, and this is the second of our two episodes with Paul Zare, in which we talk about how he uses his books, such as Project Superhero and Chasing Captain America, to popularize science. Yeah, I remember a conversation with you some years ago now in, in your office about, you know, are, are you putting yourself uh, and, and your Career in the academy somewhat at risk by moving into this uh, more popularized way of communicating, as opposed to the tier one, highly uh, broadly cited peer referee journals, which is where the impacts are often measured, as opposed to someone who takes ideas and has it read by millions of people, as opposed to 150 subscriptions to a $20,000-a-year journal that only a library can afford. So,
2: Yeah. Uh, it, it really, back when the Batman book came out, it, it kind of took me a bit by surprise, largely because... Um, I felt a bit kind of outed or something might be the way to describe it. I don't want to take ownership over that term, but that's a little bit how I felt exposed before I meant to reveal some of the stuff I was trying to reveal because I did feel uncomfortable as I was building up to um, this book release, which was supposed to be in the fall of, of, um, 2008. And, and what happened in the summer of that year, um, the dark Knight movie was coming out and there was a writer, um, really, good writer, uh, science writer from Scientific American, who was desperately looking for a science angle on Batman, basically. And, you know, books are usually listed on Amazon about six months before they're available, so they're available for pre-order. And he found Becoming Batman there, you know, the possibility of a superhero, and he wanted a galley for, we didn't even have the galleys yet, that's how premature it was. Um, But he's like, okay, okay, fine, Uh, I wanna do an interview with you. And so we did this interview, that was published then on Scientific American Online the day the Dark Knight was released in North America. And everything went haywire. I did about 30 interviews in about four days wow. from all around the world. And it was the front page of the Vancouver Sun and the, you know, of course our Times Colonist. And I was doing interviews with the BBC and Israel and Germany and Ireland and, and all these newspapers and radio shows and stuff because it was professor guy talks about the science could you be batman like all these kinds of things but my point why i bring that up is that it was right out there all of a sudden i was like uh, i never really told anybody i was writing this book it was i hadn't really gotten you know it was just and now all of a sudden I, yeah one day i was just this neuroscience professor guy and the next day i'm like this batman writer guy and um it was really abrupt yeah um but again there's an appetite for that there's it, it turns out that that interview that was done with um with me and this uh, this guy uh, turned out to be the most read article on scientific american in 2008 like it was on their website the most it, it came up again during the oscars they did it again because the dark knight was up for some you know move, you know awards and so on that heath ledger eventually won so it wound up the point is there's a lot of interest in yeah. this. Oh. Stuff. And,
0: and i think just as a kind of to stretch that example a little bit you you ended up going to comic con uh,
2: yeah, that was my first Comic Con, Lincoln, and
0: and I've not been, but any of the pictures I've seen and the things I've read, there's uh, how many people attend?
2: Uh, now it's I think one hundred fifty thousand people. Right. So yeah. try,
0: imagine an academic conference that would have one hundred fifty thousand people there. It's well, just, it's crazy. It's, of.
2: it's no uh, w- really funny. The year. So yeah, I've gone to Comic Con in San Diego. I guess maybe of the last ten years, eight years probably. And, and New York Comic Con, a few other places, and doing talks, you know, about these kinds of things and being on panels uh, and so on, discussing Batman, but from a different angle. Yeah. So you're talking with executive producers of Batman movies, and they've got their angle, and you got your angle around whatever the other thing is. Um, but that was really interesting the first year I went there because... Uh, a big scientific conference I typically go to for my area is the Society for Neuroscience, which has about 40,000 people. So it needs to be in a big convention center as well. And it often is in San Diego. So I go down there in July of that year, uh, of, this is 2009 now, to Comic-Con, where I'm just blown away by the number of people. At that point, I think there was 135,000 people. Just totally crazy. Like you... you there's people directing traffic. You can know, only go down this hall, like one-way traffic, in the, this side of the room, out the other side, because just so many people for all these events, and to then go back there that fall in October to the Society for Neuroscience Conference, which used to seem busy to me with 40,000 people, but now it was like uh, I could almost hear crickets um, because you're actually allowed to walk okay. in and out of things, and you could turn around in a hall without having to go all the way around and then back in and up. Um, so that was very interesting, actually, to, yeah. to be and, – and I've met a lot of folks I've kept in contact
0: which with. Which speaks them. to the, the draw that, that um – that realm, I guess, or genre is probably the better word, has to to people as opposed to, uh, as we've said, you know, esoteric science journals. You can you can popularize uh, science, and uh, I remember we had a uh, a visiting professor here by the name of Noel Goff, a curriculum theorist, and he used to come and teach curriculum courses to graduate students in the summer, and they would study curriculum and science as represented through. Comics, Yeah. And they will go down to curious comics. And his point was, you found more cutting edge, leading thinking about science and scientific concepts in the latest issue of a comic book than you would ever pull out of a grade 11 physics book. That you find in oh, high school, yeah. uh, because the the thinking is continually evolving and being picked up and popularized by people yeah. like yourself. And this
2: whole like it's like that idea of you know Star Trek and the the, the smartphones, right? That you sort of go look. This is the tricorder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I do uh, you know I do different talks sometimes where I just do spoken word stuff or where I'm showing slides or whatever. But I sometimes show when I'm using imagery this panel from a comic book in 1993 which is about Iron Man, it's called the Iron Manual, it's not my pun, it's theirs, but um, where they sort of show all the schematics for these different things that Iron Man's done over the years, including Tony Stark creating a robot Iron Man. This was in the context of my Inventing Iron Man book where I was talking about that character. And Tony Stark, he's injured, so he's in a hospital bed, but he wants to still be Iron Man, so he does a couple things from his bed. He creates a robot Iron Man, and it's controlled Uh, like a brain machine interface so it's controlled by thought and it shows all these diagrams and schematics of connection from the brain, um, two-way traffic to and from the robot, all these kinds of things. I show that in this presentation right beside an image from a recent review in the annual review of psychology, which was all about brain machine interfaces, where there's a diagram showing somebody controlling all these devices by thought. And it looks exact. You couldn't tell which was the comic book and which was the actual science yeah. paper. Wow. Um, because yeah. the, the ideas are there, right? I mean, back in the day, the comic book, right? He didn't, he or she didn't know how, you know, that would actually work in reality, but now we, here's how it would work. But these ideas are always advancing which in a way comes back to some of the things we were mentioning earlier. We're always way in advance of think trying to apply stuff before we
1: know how to use it sometimes. And I think that's an important thing to note, especially in academia, there's this, uh, or has been, and I think it's changing, I've only, been, I've only been really immersed into universities in my life, though, so it's a very small sample size. But I do think it is starting to change where back in the day there was no community involvement. You have the idea of the ivory tower. We want to keep it that way. You know, you're going to publish in these journals that are going to be seen by maybe 100 people. You'll read an article if you're lucky um, type deal to where, you know, you kind of bridging that gap in some ways. It's not very common that I've heard of in academia unless – I don't know if you two have heard. Yeah, I think name. it becomes
2: what you want to do for your impact. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, as I say, within standard science stuff, I've done fine. You know, I mean, I've done well you're, by the you're standards. You're very prolific. Um, so, but if I give you just kind of a ballpark thing, just to give you that why I continue you know, going back again to the question you asked uh, with other examples of an answer. You know, uh, my work has been cited. I think for the last time I looked on Google Scholar, you know over 5,000 times or something like that, which is lots for the area I work in. You've done a lot if you've been cited that many times. My blog just at Psychology Today has 500,000 page views. So, I I mean, I'm obviously affecting the lives of more people with the blog than I was with with the science. I'm still doing both things, okay? But that's kind of the thing I'm talking about. There is a place where there's more uptake. There's the uh, better ability to have impact on more people. Mm-hmm. In a positive way, hopefully. <laughs> I hope they're well, not, not out there actually creating you know, their Iron Man suits of armor to wage war. Uh, yeah. they're using, no, for I, I think
0: there's, there's clearly a role for the uh, what we'd call the public intellectual. You know, the, the person who has the training and the background and the depth, um, such as yourself, uh, or or the David Suzuki an, an, another example yeah, um, Tyson, right? Jordan Peterson another controversial but uh, albeit very public intellectual with his uh, you know million selling book <laughs> based on some of his work so it's um it's important that we have people who live not simply in the academy but are out there in various forms whether it's blog posts or youtube or public lectures or whatever it might be so or books.
2: Yeah, I think it comes back to being connected to your community, right? I mean, why would you want to live in an ivory tower anyways? Even if it existed in, as a real thing, you're isolated from everything. Uh, maybe some people like that. I, I don't know. My experience with trying to get other colleagues to do science communication, you were talking about when we, when I helped establish the Cafe Scientifique series uh, that we got going in the community here some years ago. Um that was about going out there and engaging with with the community, and and then trying to get colleagues who want to go talk. Uh, you know, where you don't have slides, we made folks just get up and talk. You don't have PowerPoint to back up. You need to talk to actual people. Um, people loved it. Hard to get folks involved sometimes because people are anxious and a little frightened of it's. You feel a bit vulnerable. You really do. Mm-hmm. Um, but afterwards, you are like, wow, that was awesome because real people from your community who you would probably never talk to about your work, frankly, mm-hmm. are asking you questions because they're interested in what you do. And I think, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes academics are reluctant to do some of this stuff because they're not sure whether people are going to approve or understand or, or want to even hear what they're doing. But, you know, people do want to know what you do. Um, so there's a lot of value for you feedback from human interaction. Um, and, and then there's like really the kind of idea it's, it's, it's almost a noble thing to be doing because you're sharing knowledge, which is really important. And I think you have an obligation to do it too, unless your, your research agenda and your job is somehow paid for from an endowment from some private corporation, you know, you're paid by tax money. And, and your work is funded by that as well for in large part. And the folks that you're talking to are the people who paid for it. Um, so there is that angle as well. I think we, can, uh, we have an obligation to just tell them what we're doing, especially also using that angle around the kind of taxpayer thing. Folks are always like, oh my gosh, well, look, at the government's going to cut all this stuff. Why aren't people defending you know, the right for free expression at universities and all these esoteric research? Well, they don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. How can they be your advocates with their pol- uh, political representatives if they have no idea what you do or why it's important? So yeah. you need to go out there and tell them, explain, tell them the story of why you're doing what you're doing, what you're actually doing and why it's important because it all is important.
1: Yeah, beautifully said. Uh, quick side note. So your daughters, are they old enough to read these comic books and read these books?
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. One daughter right now is 16. The other is 19. So, yeah.
1: Cool. What do they think about the, all this?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have thought it was neat. They've liked uh, all these sorts of things. Uh, they were really, uh, especially because I included certain anecdotes that were actually from my kids' experiences in my Project Superhero book. Like I actually include certain things with their permission, of course, right. um, and they were also kind of uh, participants in the framing of that book because I would um, I would read them stuff and say, "Hey, does this sound like, you know, to get the voice?" Because I actually was writing parts of it like I'm the 13 year old girl; it's right. her diary. So, and her dialogue with her friends. So I'd listen to them talking to their friends when I'm driving on school trips or whatever. Uh, not eavesdropping, but just thinking yeah. about how are they talking to each other, and um, and interacting with them. So I'd read them stuff, and sometimes the reaction would be, "Whoa, Dad, what? <laughs> that is not how we would. What? No." Um, and then I'd be like, "Well, how would you say it then? Like, what would you say?" And and they help me sort of frame and learn how to write that the way and get the ideas across in a way that they'd be receptive to if they were reading it. Yeah, yeah.
0: like a dialogue
1: coach.
2: Yeah, oh, basically. So. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, your teenage girls dialogue coaches.
2: Yeah, and to be honest, I had a lot of work to do when I first tried to write like that. I sent, uh, you know, I've got a couple of agents. One that does young adult stuff, and the other that does uh, uh, nonfiction work. And I sent it to my agent Allie, and she was because like, she wanted me to do this book for young adults, and she's like, "This is terrible." <laughs> like when I sent this first uh, attempt at a chapter, and she's like, "No, seriously, this is not." What a 13 year old girl or boy is going to want to read. Like, this is, you, you got to go out there and read a bunch of young adult stuff. Go read the stuff your kids are reading. So, of course, that's what I did. I read all the books. That's why I realized the diary thing Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Dear Dumb Diaries, Dear Dork Diaries, all these things. It's a popular medium. Yeah. And read all that stuff and realized, okay, now I got to take that way of talking about something and then throw the science through there and all the empowerment angles I want to do and flip it into this new way of talking. So that was really important for me to learn how to do that. And, and again, it, it's a, I like learning stuff. I like learning where my shortcomings are and trying to shore them up if I can. I realized I had a deficiency or a, a gap in how to communicate at that level. And it
0: was really helpful for me. So you're obviously a very skilled communicator, you know, it, 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 in conversation here and in, in your writing and your books and your blog posts. How, how does it find its way into your teaching? Or do you find you're able to popularize things the way you can outside the ring road when you're standing in front of a group of kinesiology students? Or
2: Yeah, well, interestingly, um, I, I, my original angle on you know, doing the Batman book even came from teaching. For years, I had been using popular media like video clips. I, when I used to do, you know, basic human physiology, I'd include Simpsons clips. You know, if it's mm-hmm. a vestibular system, there's Homer spinning around on a ceiling fan somehow, and he's dizzy afterwards, and using that as an intro to talk about <laughs> the inner ear, um, or if I was talking about human motor control in one of the Efi courses uh, that folks were taking. Uh, I'd be using uh, the old Spider-Man 2 movie uh, with Tobey Maguire. There's a scene where there's a brain machine interface that Doc Ock uses. I use that as a prelude to it or, or clips from Daredevil uh, about, you know, thinking about sensory perception and how other senses can work. And so I'd been using that in my teaching, which kind of shaped that part. And what's really funny about that, so that – being open to being creative and different way to communicate knowledge was already starting in my teaching practice as a professor before I did the books and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Then I do all that. And then it comes right back again, full circle now where, you know, um, I've now, it's, it goes every two years so far, but I've been teaching on campus, you know, the Science of Batman course, where it's an open first year across the university course where we get a couple hundred folks signed up every time it's run. And you're, I'm now using the things that were inspired by teaching in a different domain in the first place to create this whole approach to trying to communicate science, which is now being used to teach a university course. Wonderful. Um, so it's some kind of kumbaya moment there where it all actually comes back to the yeah. same place. Yeah, so that's been really, really fun. Again, for the same kind of reason that writing and and communicating science generally has been fun. Because in that course, I've got folks who are in English and in business. and in uh, art, history, uh, whatever it is, also science, engineering, whatever the backgrounds of folks are, um, but they've, I'm, I'm reaching a group to talk about science because there is a lot of science in it. the, the, the title. It really is the science of Batman, and fun. You know, lots of video clips and lots of talk, but these folks who were in art history, for example, they might never have learned anything about human biology, for example. Um, and now they are getting an appreciation of it through this course, um, and liking it. And, and that again, fits that kind of idea of what motivates me to try and provide and empower people about, you know, the fundamental importance of science knowledge in our communities.
0: It's, it's interesting. I'm re- reminded, uh, as, uh, You're talking of a previous conversation we had with David Blades, who, as you know, is also a science educator, but within the K-12 system, uh, preparing teachers here at the university, and and we were talking about his perceived links between what he calls beauty and science, and at the outset, that's not readily apparent, but he talks about how the first people doing science you know when when charles darwin was out there making his observations and building what later became the theory of evolution these people were naturalists they were connected with the natural world they were aesthetics they were concerned with the the, the natural world and all its its mystery and its beauty and out of that emerged these scientific theories and these more kind of mechanical views of it, but uh, in the interim, much of that's been lost, but the kind of work that you're doing that links art and science and popular culture um, is, is in that same realm, I would say.
2: Yeah, and, and scientific concepts, when people get them, they realize the simplicity and the beauty of what these things really represent and how they're – a big theme in all my writing is about evolution. You bring up Darwin as a great kind of segue about understanding the implications, what that means, what it means for you as a human animal. Uh, you know, all kinds of things spill out of that. But just I, I do have to say something about David Blades, though, while we're talking, while you brought him up, uh, uh, just a, a quick story because he there's a guy who gets it. Right, mm-hmm. he know he he understands all these things we're talking about in the educational context, mm-hmm. and I remember a uh, really fond memory of looking out my window when I used to be over in McLaurin. Uh, and, and he was out in the quad with one of his classes, and they were. I think they were trying to recreate Galileo's idea when he was dropping things out of the window and timing, you know, how long it would take to get the idea of gravity across, right? And so they were literally doing things out the window of another building and they were all out there, all these uh, teacher trainees, you know, making notes of things. And, you know, it just inspired me to see how animated and engaged uh, David was in terms of how he was teaching these things. And it clearly was influencing the the teacher trainees as well. And uh, it was, again, got the idea right that's a kind of message and a different way to flip the script on understanding that rather than okay and reading from the book in PISA back in you know what I mean you're actually doing experiential learning
1: which is great which we know works and it's a great thing about being kind of in the building that we are because you can you can still do that, like I. Especially in the summer, I walk by and see people throwing stuff from windows, yeah, or exactly. like that's why they're doing it. <laughs> exactly, see? or like th- doing like drawing out weird shapes and diagrams and chalk out on the thing, yeah. and people are walking around with string, and I'm like, okay, what's going on there? And yeah. it's science, and it's really neat to see that that we're starting to shift in some ways towards that. And yep. people like David yep. Blades and you are very uh very pivotal in that shift Mm -hmm. because it's important and you know i think part of the reason why people are afraid of science or math like myself is that i i the communication and the way that it was communicated to me particularly in school um albeit like i understand why that happened and no blame or shame for people but it just was not i would rather be up doing a play in drama than or even singing in choir as opposed to sitting in a classroom being dictated to by a book.
2: Yeah, I mean, a a problem with the educational system, right? the K-12, I mean, here in particular, is there aren't enough people like David Blades inspiring the next generation of teachers to feel comfortable about doing these kinds of things. So as a result, you have overburdened teachers who are Mm -hmm. trying to get through curriculum and so on, and they didn't get the greatest, a lot of times, science um, training or interest. And so they're trying to get through a module as best they can. And teaching from the book a lot of the times, and it mm-hmm. just doesn't create that kind of engagement. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, unfor- I remember, when I've done a lot of tutoring of my own kids in science and math over the years, because, you know, they always, and sometimes the teachers got it and did some really cool stuff, and sometimes they didn't. It's not their fault. No. But um, I remember when, when my oldest, I was learning about pie, you know, learning about, what is this really, that? yeah, what, where does yeah. this come from? But it was just taught, like, oh, read the book, and then I said, well, do you understand what that means? Well, no, we're just supposed to. I said, okay. I, I said, go around the kitchen. I want you to get six different things that are different diameters. Like get a plate, get a small thing, get a bowl. And then I made my daughter measure the diameter of all these things and then measure the circumference and do all this. And we made up a table. I'm like, what number do you keep getting? Isn't that weird? That no matter what circle you take, you get the same number. What do you think that means? You know, and it just took a few minutes, but she got the idea of, you know, and then I was able to take stuff further where we'd be like, Okay, well I'm gonna make a bet with you. Without measuring that, I can tell you how much water I can dump into that thing just by doing what we did here. Well, no way you can Yeah, I can. I uh, think it's gonna be this amount. So if I'm right, you know, you've got to do your chores or whatever it was. And I could show that, you know, just by using the science, calculating the math, we could do all this stuff. And you know, who knows, you know, what what kind of implication that had, but she certainly enjoyed the process more.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And see, I think we missed that at some point. I remember, like, I had to be a camp counselor and there was, like, a hullabaloo and, like, people left or whatever. So they looked at me and goes, Okay, Courtney, so you're going to teach science camp and it starts in two weeks and we don't have a curriculum. Uh, and it's, fu- you know, six to eight year olds, good luck. And I thought, Oh, no. Like, I'm really good at a lot of things, but I. that's not my wheelhouse so I finally went out and I was like okay what do I remember as a kid doing like the baking soda trick and like the Alka-Seltzer and the shaky thing so I did I did a science wizardy wizarding camp and that's what I did as (laughs) I tried to use all those things and I went to YouTube and found all that out and I did it and I managed to make it work um super stressful for that week of building that module but I made it work and then I sat there thinking you know if if we could have followed that same type of mentality about like the like the joy of science, or like the ama- like the wonder of science, and bring that up as we go up further into it, like you were doing with your kids, it would the world would be a fundamentally different place in terms of who loves science. Yeah, and, who didn't. and
2: and you can you know through the educational system, people can be inspired for some of these things. So we give some examples of where it didn't work, but also where it does. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. one thing I was going to mention, and I'll do it now with that project superhero book, <clears throat> because I have my my protagonist in grade eight, so she's in the school system. I used some real life examples too from teachers I had. You know, I think back to my own, you know, going through the school system and I had a, a crucially influential teacher in um in elementary school and then my high school English and biology teachers were critical to the way they approached the things we were doing that inspired me to go on to do the things I'm doing. And so I actually wrote them into the the book with um, different names, yeah. uh, but then sent them the book. Uh, one had passed away unfortunately, but two of the teachers sent them the book saying, look, um, this is you, this is your character right here. One I was able to use the name, the other I, I didn't. You know, I had to take my English teacher and because we were trying to make sure he became He's a Caucasian English teacher, but he became a Hispanic uh, female uh, teacher in the book <laughs> um, with the same name. <laughs> and I said, I hope you don't mind that I, I flipped you around, but it, this is how I wanted to work you in, but I, I wanted the character to be like this, yeah. to, to thank them because they helped inspire me, right? Yeah. To, to give me that kind of thinking and some of the tools I
0: used. Well, that's a great example to, uh, to close on, just the power of, of teaching, and you never know where that influence is going to end. So a conversation with another great teacher right here. and mm-hmm. thank you Paul for your, all of your time and all that you do and carry on. It's amazing work. We really uh, need more Paul's heirs in the world thank you. for sure. You're here
2: you know, thank you for your interest. Thank you.
1: Learning Transforms is brought to you by the Faculty of Education and the Association of Graduate Education students.
0: Learning Transforms is produced by Julie Remy. Sound design is by Xavier Arujo. Special thanks to E. Paul Zare. I'm Ted Rieken,
1: And I'm Courtney Baldwin.
0: Thanks for listening.